1: Welcome to the January Arsenal Women Askcast on Arseblog.com. The best podcast dedicated to the Arsenal women's team, which we can say with absolute confidence because it is the only podcast dedicated solely to the Arsenal women's team. For those of you you who follow Arsenal women will know that there has been uh, quite a lot of controversy in the last week or so um, around uh, players flying to Dubai over Christmas and New Year. For those of you that perhaps don't know, Um, A few Arsenal players, a few Man City players, some Manchester United players, I think a Birmingham City player, a lot of England internationals flew to Dubai over the kind of Christmas break. Subsequently, several of them have come back with coronavirus. And the upshot is that most of the WSL games after the resumption of the uh, Christmas break have been postponed due to coronavirus cases. And in Arsenal's case, we know three players went to Dubai. One of those has been named, two haven't. Um, but one of them came back with coronavirus and subsequently mixed with some teammates who therefore had to self-isolate. And what this has kicked off is a, is a real big controversy about um, you know, should players be doing that in the middle of a pandemic and then the knock-on effect of having games postponed. So there's been, there's been a lot of discussion over this and, and I think quite rare in women's football that people really round on women's footballers, but it's happened this week. Um, and so with me to discuss not just really um the incident but the reaction um to the incidents in particular and and what it says about what we expect of uh, women and female athletes is author of the roar of the lionesses and the pride of the lionesses dr carrie dunn carrie thanks so much for joining us again your second time on the podcast
2: yeah thank you very much for having me
1: and before we crack on i understand you're writing another book is that right
2: I am, yeah. Um, it should be out um, before the Women's Euros, hopefully, <laughs> for taking place in 2022. Um, it's more about the history of the women's game. A lot of people ask whether I'd look into doing that. And um, this is more historical. But again, it's still telling people's stories as far as possible in their own words and going back as far as possible.
1: And I know that you interviewed someone quite recently who'd be of, uh, of great interest to Arsenal fans in particular in this book.
2: Yeah, I had a lovely, lovely chat with Vic Akers just before Christmas. Um, it took me a long time to actually pin him down. And then also we played phone tag for about three months. <laughs> but um, yeah, we had a lovely long chat and just amazing to get his perspective on um, Arsenal women's glory is I guess.
1: Yeah, and a real trailblazer, not just for, I mean, principally for Arsenal, but I think for the women's game in particular. So um, yeah, we, we look forward to reading that when it comes out um, and maybe we'll even talk to you again uh, ahead of publishing. Um, but first off, let's let's kind of crack on them with the kind of um, with the with uh, I guess what's been labelled as Dubai Gate um, in the media of players, uh, many of whom haven't really been identified, but lots of people know who they are, I think, um, kind of going to Dubai over the winter break. Um, last week, Tom Gary of The Telegraph broke a story that um, two other Arsenal players, it was already in the press that Katie McCabe had been. In fact, she put it on her social media. Um, and then Tom Gary kind of broke the story that two other Arsenal players had been. And this has kind of opened a bit of a Pandora's box. And it's since become apparent that four Manchester City players went, some Manchester United players went and some of them have caught coronavirus um before we get into the reaction to the reaction i think we really want to kind of put across that when we discuss the reaction we're not saying people are wrong to feel mm. indignant about it so what was your initial reaction when these kind of reports came out and and to the incident as a whole
2: do you know what i was furious and i still am furious i think it was a massively reckless irresponsible thing to do and i was in casey stoney's press conference on friday evening um so it was a six o'clock press conference, and just as we all dialed in, the first thing they, they said to us was that their match against Everton had been postponed due to coronavirus cases in the Everton camp, which was weird because Willie Kirk had said to us earlier in the day that they didn't have any, any positive tests in the camp. So that was all very strange. And so I was in Casey's press conference, and she, was, and she to be fair, has been the only one who has really apologised for any of it. She said that she took responsibility for her players or her player all players who went to Dubai. She wouldn't be um, drawn on how many of her squad went. Um, and she said that she'd take all responsibility. The buck stops with her, which is fair enough. And, you know, she's the manager. And yes, it is her job to kind of direct flack away from her players. Um, I think it was the wrong decision, which ov- obviously she has said in retrospect. But the players need to take some responsibility as well. I've seen people say, oh, you know, they're, they're young. I'm like, Well, a lot of these players are are in their mid-twenties, late-twenties, they should know better. This is a decision that everyone had to deal with over Christmas. Are people going to travel or are they going to stay at home and try and be as safe as possible? I appreciate that players had a two-week break over Christmas. Everyone wanted to see their families, but most of us decided not to um, due to the health and safety implications. And I think flying overseas in the middle of a pandemic even though it might have been legally permitted, wasn't the wisest thing to do for anybody, no matter where you live in the country, no matter whether it was permitted in government guidelines. It wasn't the best choice to make.
1: Yeah, and we should say as well, there are kind of differing because some of the players were in Tier 3, for example, so they were allowed to go, um, the Manchester City and Manchester United players. The Arsenal players were in Tier 4, so really they weren't, but Arsenal's, Arsenal's public line is that they've accepted that these trips were made for business reasons um, and that players' agents were out there, um, and... You know, I, I guess what Arsenal say publicly and what they think privately might be two different things. But I, I guess actually that we should acknowledge that's aroused a lot of anger as well. The fact that, um, you know, Arsenal, for example, are saying, well, actually, it was for business reasons. What You know, there's been a lot of clamour for apologies and you referenced Casey Stone's apology there. What's your what's your take on, I guess, Arsenal and Manchester City are the, are the big, you know, perpetrators here. Uh, <laughs> what's your take on on the public line there?
2: Yeah, I mean I understand why they're doing it. I mean, if they were there, if they did have business meetings out there, then yes, of course, they're allowed to kind of sit on the beach afterwards. That's fine. I mean, if, if that's what happened, then yes, that is permitted by the letter of the guidance. But I think it would have been so much better and so much more graceful had they just said the players were permitted to go or they had permission to go if they had got permission to go. Um, we realise in retrospect. It is not a good look. Um, fans will be annoyed by it. I'm really sorry perhaps we'd have made a different decision had we thought about it in more detail, which is what Casey said, essentially. Mm. It, it doesn't take much to do it. And obviously now Casey has a, a lot of kudos coming her way because everyone has been so angry that no one has acknowledged some quite justifiable anger from fans. Because let's not forget, fans can't even go to matches at the moment, pretty much, across all of elite football. We're all sitting at home, not going anywhere, and doing our essential shopping, having our one hour a day exercise. And then when you see players posting their pictures on social media, it is quite infuriating. And I think... Also, we know now that not all the players who were there were posting on social media. We know that they were trying to keep it as secret as possible, which also indicates to me that they knew that it wouldn't be received particularly well.
1: Yeah. And and I think what's um, what's also made this quite interesting is that there, I, I feel like there's always this tension when you cover women's football between kind of covering it, you know, as a journalist, but also promoting Mm -hmm. um at the same time and sometimes there's not a comfortable overlap between those two things because you can get sucked into being a bit of a cheerleader um and a promoter which which you don't really get in men's football because no one needs to do that it's it's self-evident that it's very popular it's not growing um in effect and but but what's really struck me is the the strength of the feeling and the reaction there's been lots of pieces written this week um, you know really I don't want to say turning on the players but you know that's been very very critical and I I can't remember I've seen it described as the first us and them incident in women's football I'm not so sure about that because of maybe the Mark Sampson affair um, and for people that don't know Mark Sampson the former England manager was accused of making racist remarks to a few of his black players um, and in the game after these allegations came out England scored and The largely white players ran over to him to celebrate, which the optics of which I think were quite appalling, to be honest. Um so maybe there was that was a bit of an us and meant them moment as well. But I I guess what before we we really crack on to the kind of Twitter thread you put together that really inspired this podcast is is there a reason really in women's football that fans and journalists alike should feel like should feel a closeness to the players that has perhaps led to some of this disappointment. Is that, is that useful or worthwhile or does that place an unreasonable expectation or, or kind of confer an ownership um, on the players that perhaps is a little bit unfair and maybe unhealthy?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting observation to make. And I think that, There is something in that. I think that fans and journalists alike do have a certain um, closeness to female players. But I think that's been deliberately cultivated. I think clubs have deliberately cultivated that. I think players have deliberately cultivated that. So you can't then turn around and criticise fans and journalists for being angry about feeling betrayed when you've just spent the previous however many seasons trying to get fans and journalists on your side in that way yeah it's it's interesting but also an absolute mess isn't it
1: yeah, absolutely and and you know I wonder going forward whether that you know I, I think it would be really interesting to see whether any relationships become strained as a result. Um we will see, but the the meat of the podcast what I really want to get into was um I think it was on Friday you put together a, quite an interesting Twitter thread um on this and, and what it says, what the reaction says about our expectations of women and female athletes in particular and obviously we're talking in a sporting context but I think it goes much wider than that and I I guess I just want to give you the chance to perhaps um, expand on that thread um, that you put together and and the ideas behind it.
2: Sure so It was my my tweets were in response to um, my friend, Jen Offord, who presents uh, part of the Standard Issue podcast. And she was saying that what she found most striking is that people seem surprised that women can behave badly, too. And they kind of triggered kind of a lot of thoughts um, that kind of stem back to my own kind of Ph.D. research, but also my journalism. Um, So my Ph.D. research was in the area of female fans of men's football. And pretty much before the turn of the millennium, so that's when I started doing my research in 2004. Um, So before that, pretty much all the football research that had been done into fans was about hooliganism. It was about. Uh, working class men it was about working class men's um, use of their leisure time and there was this kind of assumption that men who watch football would also be working in a factory during the week which is actually why there's the traditional three o'clock kickoff though so the expectation mm-hmm. was that men would work in the factory on Saturday morning and then go into the game afterwards and the only real mention of women Uh, in this kind of early academic research is the expectation that if you encourage more women to football, they would be there to encourage men to behave better. There's this kind of principle called the civilising influence that a lot of researchers talked about. This idea that women are just morally better than men and them being there would encourage better behaviour. And I was kind of thinking about this a little bit more And again, this is kind of a weird connection, but I did my master's degree in English literature. And anyone who's read any kind of Dickens or Bronte or Hardy will be very familiar with this idea of the kind of neat, domestic, quiet, well-behaved female figure, what a lot of literary critics have called the angel in the house. And it's kind of in opposition to kind of the evil, badly-behaved whore, if you like. And this kind of binary opposition between men and women, I think, is kind of what we see in a lot of sports coverage now. And yeah, we still see it this this week. We've seen journalists kind of talk about how they expect better from their female footballers because female footballers are such great role models. And there's this just kind of lack of nuance, this kind of failure to recognise that women are not morally good by the virtue of just being women they are people they are human they behave just as badly or just as well as their male counterparts and that absence of acknowledgement of that is still present in sports journalism I found that so fascinating this week
1: yeah and um I I studied literature um too and and actually one of one of um I can't remember who said it, but um, I remember coming across some criticism that essentially said the two biggest female characters in all of literary history are the Virgin Mary and the Whore of Babylon, and therefore like two completely polar extremes and therefore, you know, women fit one of those roles. And and another one of the things you said in that thread that, that really interested me was um, something about a deep-seated issue we have in society about the idea of women being competitive, um, and, and, you know, like women being sportswomen as well. And, and you know, competitive people can be difficult, right? They can be difficult people to deal with because, generally speaking, they're not like most people. Um, and, and that's difficult too, right, for us to reconcile that with female athletes.
2: Absolutely. And, again, I talked about clubs and governing bodies deliberately trying to um, create a particular relationship with fans and journalists and I think this kind of trying to play down competitiveness of female athletes is part of that And um, you'll remember uh, six years ago now when um, the England squad came back from Canada with their bronze medal and that infamous FA tweet about um, they went out to Canada as daughters partners and sisters putting them very firmly in this kind of familial context And um, there's this kind of real focus on saying that these top female athletes are in their kind of domestic context, that they're girls next door, that they're just like us, um, except just really good at sport, when obviously they're not just like us, they're genetic freaks, they're really good at sport, the rest of us are nowhere near as good at sport as as these people, and we're nowhere near as driven as you have to be to be a top professional athlete. And there's this kind of long tradition of amateurism, Corinthianism in the women's game, which really hasn't caught up to the professionalisation of it. There's this still this idea that women play for the love of the game, not for money. And I think that is heavily tied up with what we've seen from the reaction this week. This idea we expect better from our women because they're not mercenaries like their male counterparts. And it's Painful to watch this kind of unravel because people haven't realized, you know, the the kind of these stereotypes that when women play football, they don't dive. They don't argue with the referee. You don't get kind of snide fouls off the ball. Obviously you do. But there's this a really, really long held, deeply held stereotype that because women are amateur, they're morally good, they're in binary opposition to our mercenary professional male players. It doesn't happen. And yes, again, we're seeing this clash of ideas this week.
1: Yeah, and and it's quite interesting as well because last year I remember there was um, there was a big reaction, for example, to Emma Mitchell going on loan from Arsenal to Spurs, um, and some of the that that kind of mm. brought up an interesting reaction because you you reference you know we have this idea that players aren't mercenaries. Um, and so I'm not saying that Alex Greenwood is a mercenary, but she's played for Liverpool, Everton, Manchester City and Manchester United. And most players will go to Leon if they get the offer because they know, you know, they don't have an affinity to Leon. They know they'll get paid well and they'll win stuff. That And that's absolutely like, why wouldn't you do that? And, and actually, you know, you look at the, the current Tottenham squad has six ex-Arsenal players in it. So, you know, th- there is, again, I'm not saying that they're mercenaries for doing that, but this does happen you know, women athletes do go to where the next job is, um, where, you know, the best pay is and the best contract is. Um and and you said something there that that really struck with me as well about, you know, people say, Oh, there's no diving, is there? And I, I kind of think, yeah, there is. There's loads. Mm-hmm. And um one of the kind of theories I, I've had as well, and I want to get your view on this, is um there's there's very few red cards in women's football which when you watch it is shocking because there are so many bad tackles Mm -hmm. and um, which are usually given as yellow cards or barely even given as fouls. And quite often I sit there and I just think what that is clearly a red card. And my kind of pet theory about why more women players aren't sent off is A, that subconsciously some officials perhaps buy into that amateurism, that kind of, okay, this actually isn't really like a, a Premier League game or anything. But mainly, I think it's because people think, "Well, oh, like, I don't think a woman would do that on purpose." And and there's a lot of discussion about refereeing standards, and I, I wonder what what your take is on that.
2: Yeah, I think I think there's elements of both of those uh, theories in well what, what we see play out every week. Um, I think also, again, because the women's game was professionalised so quickly, I think, and I'm, I'm not saying it was an explicit idea, but because players get Find for bookings and red cards. I think maybe there might have been something in officials kind of 10, 15 years ago, if I book this girl, she's going to get 50 quid taken out of her pay pack at the end of the week. And when you're paying to play still at the top level mm. of women's football, that is still quite quite an impact. So I think maybe that was kind of, there were kind of dregs of that still. But yeah, I do think there is an overarching idea that a woman wouldn't mean a bad goal because, you know, the girls, they wouldn't do that. Why would they do that for? Only men are aggressive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think also that there's something else um, that you kind of put in the thread um, and I'll link it on the show notes that, that really um, made me reflect as well on, on things that I not just have said in the past, but have said very recently when you talked about some of the reasons that people, uh, particularly men, say that they like women's football. And I know I've said this many times that, um, I, I see it as a kind of refreshing alternative um, to men's football, not just because of the, you know, the, I, I'm not really concerned about salaries and things like that. That's that's not something that really interests me. But I I like, uh, you know, I like the football um, and all of that. But there is like almost I've described it before myself as like a non-league vibe, that you're closer to the players, that the crowds are a bit lower, so it feels a bit more like you belong and things like that. And and actually what we've seen with this incident is some of that has been pricked and mm. and i guess um is is that and like you said women's football does explicitly market itself um along those lines and and i guess with this incident um do you think that is going forward still a useful way of marketing women's football or again do you think that perhaps creates this this kind of sense of unfairness this or this angel in the house kind of vibe mm. do you think it's you think that perhaps we should move away a little bit from that
2: yeah i think there are kind of there are there are a few strands there that i'd like to kind of respond to um so yes um I did some research at the world cup in Canada, talking to England fans that had gone out to follow the England team. And I talked to them about why they started following women's football. And so often it was because it was in opposition to the evil, corrupt men's binary. It was, um, accessible players were accessible. Um, the clubs valued your custom, um, You could get to stand with your friends at the ground. You weren't being ripped off for ticket prices. It was somehow more real. Um, It was kind of how men's football was in the good old days. So kind of harking back to this uh, kind of mythical golden age of men's football, I guess, that everyone seems to think is a generation before now. Um, And... Yeah, I it's I should also say it's not just a problem with women's football in England. It's all across the world women's football is kind of being treated as um a kind of more more nice, more real these players are much more accessible alternative. I mean, you you, you saw it during um during the US women's national team's um court case um right. for, for their equal pay and some of the reaction to that is like, why would women want to get paid for doing what they should be honoured to do, etc., etc. And the fact that some of those court papers that got released had like players home addresses in the kind of failure to acknowledge that these are actually high profile women who might have legitimate concerns over security. Um, and going forward, I honestly have no idea. Um, I know that clubs will still want to try and market women's football as a financially viable, um, easily accessible alternative to going to a men's match if you can't afford the ticket prices. But yeah, I think you're right. I think this has gone some way to kind of blowing open the, not, not lie, but I guess again, again, myths around women's football. The fact that, you only buy it's a bit like when people are kind of going to stage door to visit actors, to get autographs straight after mm. a performance. You're not buying your ticket to make friends with players just because mm. you can tweet them doesn't make them your friends. You're only buying a ticket to watch a football match. That's all mm. your money entitles you to. And I think the, uh, the intense capitalism of any kind of professional sport has become a uh,
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Yeah, and I think um, a, lot of, a lot of points people have made in the, in the reaction, which, which I think are kind of good points, is obviously there's such a separate, like, women's football is so divided between the haves and have-nots, like even more than men's football, um, you know just look at Arsenal's results this season you can tell which clubs they play that have similar resources and which ones aren't because they have a plus 30 goal difference that tells you a lot um, and and you know even like the second tier of women's football is semi-professional mm-hmm. and so there's there's you know a lot of people been saying you know a lot of your direct colleagues and friends are key workers themselves for example but And so there really is a distinction between Arsenal, Manchester City, Chelsea, Manchester United and the rest. And uh, these are a lot of the players who've who've kind of erred in going to Dubai. Do do you think, do you sense that this is a beginning of a kind of a line in the sand moment, um, if not with the whole women's game with those clubs?
2: Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's also important to kind of note that even when we say haves in women's football, we're not talking about massive amounts of money for the top players. I mean, they earn a good living, don't get me wrong, but we're still talking. I mean, part, part of the problem that we've had with the coronavirus cases in women's football is because so many of the players are in shared accommodation. Um, they're not kind of in mansions you know, with the, with their own families. They're kind of sharing digs. And I saw an article in the Guardian this week, and it was saying, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo was in Dubai. Why is he getting nothing when some female players are getting loads? You said, well, I don't think Cristiano Ronaldo is going to go back to some kind of little digs which he shares with four other of his first teammates and spreading a potential virus around with them. And I think this is the issue that people are overlooking. It's the lack of consideration of how it's going to impact on other people. And I mean, the haves and have not things we're also seeing um, in the FA Cup stuff that was, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're two rounds behind with the Women's FA Cup now. And one of the plans that's being mooted is to decide some of the outstanding ties on the toss of a coin. So you've got your tier three players, so the National League players who are being judged as non-elite, not being able to kick a ball, not being able to go to training, not being able to finish off their season at the moment or play their FA Cup ties. And then they're seeing their tier one and tier two counterparts kind of stretch the leash a little bit more than might be um, preferable. And I think they're quite rightly... Fairly, fairly angry. And I think, you know, I've talked about this quite a lot before, the rapid, rapid growth of professional women's football in this country. Um, I understand why it happened. I think perhaps it was too quick uh, because now we are seeing this gaping chasms between, as you said, the uh, well-resourced clubs at the top of the WSL, the less well-resourced clubs at the bottom of WSL. And then we go to the championship, which is semi-pro, which... Clubs can can potentially turn professional if they get promoted, which clubs can't, which clubs from the National League would be able to step up to go semi-pro. It's really difficult. We have so few um, professional clubs in this country in women's football. Uh, Will they be able to stay professional if they go back to the championship? You know, it's, it's all up in the air and I don't think there's a particularly strong strategy tying all this together. And we're starting to see some of the seams burst a little bit. We have such a, a shaky foundation for it.
1: And, you know, we've talked a lot about the kind of the fan reaction, the press reaction, but we should acknowledge there has been a reaction from inside the game as well. So you've mm-hmm. got Emma Mitchell, an ex Arsenal player tweeting about um, perhaps preferential treatment for certain clubs who who have got postponements this weekend um, despite being perceived to have, you know, self-inflicted, um, you know, COVID COVID cases. Um, and then you've got someone like Jilly Flaherty, for example, very, very well-known, very well-respected figure within the game, has played with pretty much everyone who is everyone. Um, and she's been tweeting, you know, these players should come out and apologise. And, I mean, first of all, I guess, is the player reaction part of what we were talking about at all in terms of um, what we expect from female athletes, like, can female athletes themselves um, kind of, I don't want to say fall victim to that, but do you know what I mean? Kind of um, be a product of that thinking. And also do, do you see, I guess, a line in the sand between the players inside the game?
2: Yeah, I mean, I certainly do think that female players can um, take on board some of these kind of binary stereotypes we've talked about, but also we have to kind of, we can think of it in typical professional sports terms. You expect a certain standard behaviour from your teammates, from your peers, from your counterparts. And when someone lets the side down, there's often a kind of self-policing almost. And I think that's what we're seeing here. We've got some high-profile players coming out and saying this is unacceptable and trying to maybe force some of the issue up into the open. Um, And in terms of kind of an ongoing, perhaps, division between the players, I I I wouldn't be surprised. I don't see, unless the players obviously apologise uh, vociferously in private, which might have happened, I don't know. Um, if there hasn't been an apology, you can understand teammates being angry because it's their health being put at risk. And particularly when we know that players and squads are training within a bubble, we know that um, youth teams are being kept separate from first teams. And um, When players are respecting rules that are very, very strict that are possibly stricter than government guidelines, and then the government guidelines are flouted. You can understand why players would be angry. I would be angry. I am angry, and I'm not a player.
1: And with the kind of postponements, for example, so Arsenal and Manchester City got their games postponed. Um, Birmingham City, uh, for example, they asked for a postponement and didn't get it. They don't, I think they have one COVID case, but actually, what they have is an injury crisis in a small squad. They didn't get um, their postponement and there, there has been some accusations about the FA kind of co to the bigger clubs. There was a, just quickly, there was an incident in October, I think, where Bristol City mm. had five players self-isolating. They requested a postponement for a game against Man City. They didn't get it on the technicality that, A, they didn't actually have a positive test. They just had a player with symptoms, Who lived with four other players, and therefore they were responsible, and you know kept them away, and effectively they were punished for that. Mm. Do Do you think that um, that there's any uh, any kind of um, any truth to the idea that perhaps some of the bigger clubs are getting favourable treatment, or do you think this is just a really weird situation that leads to slightly inconsistent slight inconsistencies?
2: Well, I think I think it's a horrible situation. I think the FA. Uh, having to make up rules almost on the hoof. And I think it has led to inconsistency and less than ideal decision-making. I mean, I feel terrible for the Bristol City squad because that was ridiculous at the time. The fact that you had players doing the responsible thing as they've been requested to do, and then the squad, the team, the club suffers suffers for it. Um, and then, oh, I, feel, I again, I feel bad for Birmingham. I mean... What we're seeing with the coronavirus rule for match postponements, if I I hope I've got this correct. Um, The idea is if your squad number goes below 14 because of coronavirus, then you're entitled to ask for a postponement. And I think what other clubs are now rightly saying is, well, why is that only applicable to if coronavirus takes your squad below 14? Because we've seen plenty of incidents, you know, even at Arsenal when the bench has been fairly... Fairly, fairly sparse, um what about if you have um like Bristol City had your self isolating case if that takes your squad below fourteen why doesn't that count if you have one coronavirus case and then you know a dozen injuries like Birmingham seem to have had why doesn't that count it's It's an absolute mess, and you know I hate to use the word it's kind of a cliche, but you know it's unprecedented times it's difficult to come up with rules that work for everybody but this has been uh, such a strange week, a horrible week for everybody involved, You know, whether that's fans, players, journalists, clubs, the FA. I don't think anyone would have expected any of this. And yeah, I th- it, it does look like some decision making has been slightly harsh on some clubs and it is not an ideal situation.
1: I just want to um, to finish to, to kind of really pick back up on, you know, this this idea of what we expect of, of, of women's football, of women's uh, footballers and athletes and things like that. And, you know, you referenced, um, you know, talking about how a lot of fans have kind of been attracted to the women's game as this kind of um, binary, I guess, uh, opposite to the men's game. I know lots of people who say that, mm-hmm. who say I fell out of love with men's football and I found something um, that I prefer at women's football. I've said that. Myself and I mean, I I guess it's it's nuanced, right? But do you think that do you think that that's the wrong way um, to think about women's football? Do you think there's some justification for feeling like that, or do you think that actually, even if well-meaning, it does come from a place of expecting less of women?
2: I don't think it's necessarily expecting less of women. I just think it's a different set of unhelpful expectations and I think maybe there was some truth to a lot a lot of these ideas kind of maybe 20 years ago but I think with professional sport which is essentially there to make money I think it's I think it's just not necessarily viable any longer I mean is it going to be that people who are looking for this kind of ideal of football um where people are playing for love of it are they going to go down a couple of tiers to watching um, Tier 3, Tier 4 women's football. You know, that's there to watch. There are mm. clubs there to support. Could it be that um, clubs now, with um, their player behaviour, are essentially biting the hand that, that, that's fed them through this 10-year growth of uh, professionalisation? I don't know. We'll have to see. But, um, yeah, it does feel like kind of a crunch time to me.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I was going to ask, do you think it was always inevitable um, that this like Corinthian idea would start to erode away or do you think that there was a way w- is, was there a way of having our cake and eating it of professionalizing the game starting to pay players what they deserve but keeping that closeness Do you, do you think that's possible
2: Um, I think certainly the facade of it was going to or probably still will continue. I think these stereotypes are really, really hard to break um, this expectation that women behave better. I mean, it's not just in sport. It's not just in football. It's in all of society. There are certain expectations. you You know, the phrase boys will be boys. Boys are expected to behave in certain kind of chaotic, bad ways and that women are expected to set a good example um you know you see, you see it in kind of child raising theories the fact that we expect boys to be ser- uh, a certain kind of chaotic and rebellious and noisy and messy and dirty where we expect girls not to um so these are deeply held ideas it's not just in football so i think probably these stereotypes will carry on but I think people are starting to see through perhaps it's slightly more opaque in football than it was Mm. this time last week.
1: Yeah. I think um, just as an aside, I'm going to use any excuse I can to throw in a bit of a Bjork analogy. Uh, My, just my favorite musician, but there was an incident in the mid nineties where she attacked a reporter. um, And I I remember um, like, like the fallout of that was, Oh my God, like this female musician has attacked Mm. a reporter at at an airport. Like she, kind of went for this reporter um and and yet like when you look at um how rock and roll behavior should we call it is reported amongst male rock stars it's much like if liam gallagher does that it's kind of oh liam's, oh, liam's oh, liam. yeah yeah exactly exactly um I, just as a as a final question um to bring this to a close we, we touched on it earlier but i i'm quite interested in this idea um probably in quite um a self-indulgent way about the line between being, I guess, a fan of the women's game and a journalist. Um, And this is something I've thought about um, a lot recently. And and I know, for example, in the comments on Ask Blog News, sometimes people say to me, you're too pally with with Joe Montemoro um, and things like that. And it's the first time I've really been confronted with, with that kind of criticism. And it's made me think about, where does my being a fan and being like a reporter i guess where does that begin and end and and i've been thinking about that looking at some of the coverage this week because the the truth is most people that cover women's football do so because they were there there's an interest there and they're fans first um and i guess um you know is there a distinction or has there been a distinction between the journalist and fan reaction to this and if not should there be
2: um Again, there are a couple of of threads there that are worth kind of interrogating a little bit more. Um, I think we see this kind of difficulty of journalists being close, for want of a better word, to the subject of the thing they report about. We see that, again, across society. These are the people that you're seeing day in, day out. You have to talk to them day in, day out. You need to walk a very fine line between asking difficult questions that need to be asked Mm -hmm. and maintaining a decent relationship with them so that you can actually have something to write about. You see, in politics, you know, Mm -hmm. that's been one of the overarching themes of the the pandemic, hasn't it? The open press conferences and thinking, why are you asking that question like that? Why are you not following up? Why haven't you, you're too chummy with them? All those kind of criticisms. So there's that. From what I've seen this week, journalists by and large who concentrate mostly on the women's game have been just as angry as any of the fans I have seen. Mm -hmm. They might have been slightly more... um, measured about it I think fan response has been kind of quite instinctive and journalists have kind of taken the time to kind of think about how all the moving pieces have fitted together they've had to ask clubs particular questions to find out you know who got permission who didn't all that kind of stuff but I think by and large um, journalists have been just as angry as fans I mean there are a couple of exceptions Um some journalists that I've spoken to have kind of been like well I don't really see that much wrong with it but you know, maybe they should apologise, but by and large, I think uh, fans and journalists, and from what it seems like, a lot of players are pretty much united on this one.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and uh, and and I wonder if um, if um, maybe going forward, whether and I'm not I'm not necessarily saying they should, but again, like talking about line in the sand moments, do, does this create? tension between because i'm I'm thinking of like should we say the guilty parties right the players like they're seeing all of this i'm certain mm-hmm. um i know some of them are and and what kind of reaction does that produce does that begin to create a distance um or does that just create reflection or you know it do, does that just push these poles apart um a little bit and 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 i guess whether maybe that's healthy um
2: Hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, I don't know. It's difficult to kind of predict what's going to happen because I don't know who is seeing what from the reaction as well. Um, it will be interesting to see how it pans out over the next, probably the next week. I think if if we get past this point next week and there's been no kind of forthcoming or p- apologies or statements from any of, as you say, the guilty parties, then we might have a, greater problem i think we've still got a little bit of a grace period here
1: yeah definitely and at, at time of recording you know it's it's sunday there's only one fixture today next weekend hopefully we'll have more fixtures and that because like the story isn't going to move on until some games are played basically so i, I think you're right that the, the next kind of week is is very um you know it, yeah important um in that respect and we'll we'll know a lot more this time next week anyway Dr. Carrie Dunn, I've taken far too much of your time already. That was that was really fascinating. And I'm I'm really grateful because I wanted to do something on this, but I wanted to do something a bit different. And I think the angle um, of talking about like how you know what what it says about what we expect and perhaps going a bit meta and looking at the reactions has been a really refreshing angle. And I feel like I've I've learned a lot from it. So thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Hopefully next time I can come on in slightly nicer circumstances.
1: Yeah, indeed. We've done two really heavy topics now (laughs) the last couple of podcasts. Like last month we did, you know, representation of black women in the media and and that was very heavy. And again, I learned a lot from that. But yeah, perhaps perhaps next month we'll do, hopefully we'll do something a bit lighter and and maybe talk about actual football for a change. But nevertheless, thank you so much for your insights, Carrie. Really, really appreciated. Um, We will be back with another episode um, in February. Um, don't know what that's going to be about yet hopefully something a bit lighter but until then thank you so much for joining us and we'll speak to you very soon